Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as this is another live interview with Emily Murrow. And on this episode, we talk with her about the idea of balance and whether it's achievable, mythical, unhelpful, or something else. Emily practices a lawyer for many, many years, and now she works with lawyers and law firms, assisting them to think deeply about the work they do and why they do what they do. So while the audience that I recorded this in front of was lawyers, it actually applies to anybody, because the principles that we talk about would relate to any job, really. Here are two short little excerpts of the interview with Emily. It's a, it's a story of an interview with Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first female judge on the US Supreme Court. And she was asked one day what it was that she found to be, that contributed most to her great professional success. And she said, it's actually very simple. It's two things. One is I focus on doing my best work, my very best at whatever it is I'm doing. And secondly, unless I know I've done something wrong, I put it aside and I don't look back. I move on. Truly, your work is your love made visible, then you will find a sustainable integration that will probably serve you well. And if your work is not your love made visible, then perhaps you should be doing some soul searching around that one. And what, what could you do that would make that more the case? And this is one of those episodes that I've turned around really fast because I was just in Auckland yesterday at the New Zealand Christian Lawyers Conference, which is where this session was recorded. So it's less than 24 hours since I did it. And as well as talking about balance, we talk a lot about some really interesting topics. For example, Emily shares about her childhood growing up in the Quaker tradition. I think you'll find it quite interesting. If you do enjoy it, then consider checking out some of the 104 other episodes in the back catalogue. And for those of you who haven't listened to an episode before but were at the conference, then welcome to the community. Now let's get into this conversation with Emily. That's good. A natural hush. I love it. Kia ora koto ko Stephen toku ingoa no autotahi ao. My name is Stephen Moe, for those of you I haven't met yet. And this is going to be a really unusual session. So I want you to take a really deep breath and prepare yourself. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Emily Morrow here. Um, thank you for joining me today. Um, this is actually uh, being recorded and it's gonna be released as an episode of a podcast. So this is a live, a live session in front of all of you, but the people who are listening don't know that. <laughs> um, but the podcast is called Seeds. It's a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people who are making a positive impact with their lives. And we go a bit deeper with people. We ask them questions about where they're from and try to work out why they do what they do. Get to those why questions. So what we're going to be doing today, Emily, is talking about the, the word balance. But before we get into that, um, I love the perspective that Te Ao Maori brings, mm. which is to say, what's your whakapapa? Mm. Where are you from? And so if I was approaching this interview in a Western way, I would simply say, tell me about balance. What is it? How can I achieve it? Is it good? Is it not? But we're not going to do that. 
we're going to treat this as if it was a Seeds podcast episode. And we're going to step back and we're going to ask a little bit about you and where you're from. So could we just start with that, please? Please. Yes, thank you. First of all, it's so lovely to be here. So uh, I am from Vermont, and my family's mostly Canadian, but I grew up in Vermont. And my family is, um, I was uh, raised as a Quaker. And I went to a Quaker school, and then I went to a Quaker summer camp, and then I went to a Quaker university. And I was really interested in Roshan's presentation last night, his fascinating presentation, because, of course, the Quakers were very active in England and other and in the United States, and interestingly, also in um, Tasmania, uh, witnessing around things like um, anti-slavery and um, uh, in Tasmania, I was fascinated to learn that they were witnessing around conditions in the penal colony there at Port Arthur. So in any event, uh, then I married my husband, who was also from Vermont, and we lived there for many years. And then about 15 years ago, I, I had been a partner at a major law firm and uh, in, a, in a trust and estates and tax practice, and my husband is a forensic pathologist, and we decided that we wanted to move to this part of the world. And we first moved actually to Sydney, and we lived there for three years. And um, I worked with a national consultancy firm there with lawyers and law firms. And then about 11 years ago, my husband was offered a job in Auckland, and we moved to Auckland, and I've been doing uh, consulting work of that type. That's great. Well, we're going to get to that, but I want to go back in the past a sure. bit further. So tell us a bit more about your childhood mm. and what it was like growing up in a Quaker family with that sort of tradition. Because yeah. I think for me and for others, they may not be as familiar with ah, it. Okay. So could you just describe that and put yourself as a six or seven-year-old? Sure. That's the type of impression that I'd love to get from you. Okay, great. Well, the, the core tenant of Quakerism is that there is that of God in every person. And one of the corollaries of that is um, in what we call unprogrammed meetings, that they, they are silent meetings for meditation in which when someone is moved by the Holy Spirit to say something, that they do so. So some of my earliest memories are going to Quaker meeting and having to sit very you know, quiet and still for about an hour. And my, the Quaker meetings I most enjoyed were the ones outdoors in the beautiful summers in Vermont. When I went to summer camp in Vermont, every Sunday we would have a, um, an hour Quaker meeting sitting around in a circle under um, looking over this beautiful lake with the mountains in the background. And every morning we would have a 15-minute um, Quaker meeting, and so that really informed uh, my, my childhood. And uh, I guess to this day, even though we're no longer uh, involved in, the, in Quakerism particularly, but that very much informs in particular my, my strong comfort with silence and using silence as a modality to collect my thoughts, to reconnect with the divine, with God, that, that that's um, a very comfortable milieu. And it, so it sounds like nature was a big part of that as yes, well? Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, the other thing about Quakerism, as I guess Roshan indicated, is that the Quakers have this very strong commitment to um, turning beliefs into action. And um, part of that, so for example, there's a very strong interest in the Quaker community in, around nature and in the environmental issues. 
Uh, Quakers are also uh, a pacifist church, so that um, Quakers qualify as conscientious objectors. And interestingly, my husband's father was a conscientious objector. He was a physician. He was a conscientious objector during the Second World War, and um, you know served in the um, Friends, the American Friends Service Committee um, Medical Corps. So just talk us through, you're coming through, say, high school, and you're mm. trying to decide what you're going to do with your life, mm. um, and you ended up in the legal profession. So to what extent did your Quaker roots, I guess, have an influence on that, do you think? Uh, okay. Well, it's interesting. During the um, summer of my senior year of high school, right before I was going to begin university, I, I am bilingual in Spanish, and I got a summer teaching job um, teaching in, in a Spanish-English bilingual education program for the children of Mexican-American migrant families who would travel up from southern Texas to pick uh, in, to work in the agricultural fields in the Midwest of the United States. And so I was teaching in this sort of supplemental ed education program for them. And in the evenings, I, I volunteered to work with a lawyer who was going around to the migrant camps and providing free legal assistance to the migrant families in qualifying for certain public assistance benefits. They were very poor. And I would translate for him. And I got to know the families. And it was a lovely experience. And I also saw firsthand how a knowledge of the law enabled one to provide very practical solutions and advice to people to enhance their lives. And it was at that point in time that I decided that I wanted to go to law school. And um, what I did was I did four years of baccalaureate degree with, um, it was a multidisciplinary training in psychology, sociology, and cultural anthropology. And then I went on and got a doctorate in law. Mm. So, so it was really that practical reality <laughs> that people yeah. needed help yep. that drew you to the law? Absolutely. And, and that was the thing. I, I ended up not going into public assistance law, but instead going into private practice and doing the trust of the states and tax work. But what I really loved about that was the ability, in particular, to work with people um, at a time when they were thinking about their own mortality and family issues and difficult things in their lives, that, that we could kind of go into the confessional together to talk about those things, and then I could pull that information together into wills or trusts or what have you that would address the kinds of needs and concerns, um, be they financial or spiritual or whatever, that, that would, um, if I did my job right, that would avoid subsequent problems and deterioration of relationships in those families. Um, increasingly, personally, I have come to view the notion of sin as being a breakdown in the flow of relationships. And in particular, I think of the Trinity as a relationship between the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that, you know, there's no breakdown in that relationship. It is a constant flow. And that um, sin occurs when there is a breakage in the flow of relationship. Mm. So I guess talk us through your career then in terms of, because mm. um, we're coming to this topic of balance, mm. which is a word that 
gets thrown around a lot, <laughs> and everyone is talking about I want to have balance in my life mm. and things. Um, how did you manage it during your your career, mm. and um, how has that led you to what you're doing today? Yeah, yeah. Oh, good question. I, I guess my initial answer would be sometimes better than others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I was, um, during the time I was building my practice, we had, my husband and I had our daughter, he was working full time, I was working full time. And what I guess I realized a couple of things fairly early in the practice of law that uh, it would behoove me, it would serve me well, in fact, it would serve our whole family well, my firm and our clients and the partners, to um, envisage a kind of reality that in which balance would be um, a very important value, and then to design the way I practiced to support that reality. So, for example, I realized early along that it would work well to create a very strong team structure in which I practiced, and to bring in very capable people to invest the time and energy in training them, to give them the kind of work that would um, best utilize their capabilities, and that that would create um, wonderful learning opportunities for them and probably um, strengthen their, um, it, would, it would increase their retention in our firm, and it would also make my life a lot more manageable because I wouldn't be trying to do everything for everybody. Um, that kind of team structure was predicated on um, delegating very effectively, which is something I'm a big proponent about, and it's also predicated on having very high trust professional relationships with the people with whom you work, really respecting them. And again, that notion of my religious and spiritual underpinning, the, the Quakerism, and that notion of there is God in every human being, uh, certainly once again informed the choices I made about how I managed that team. And, um, and it certainly, I think, created a very high quality of life for me, for the team members, and a really high quality experience for, for our clients. I, I have to share with you a, uh, this is a, a classic Quaker story. Um, so the, the story is that William Penn, who I think maybe his name came up last night, but William Penn came over from, from the UK and he wanted to create the colony of Pennsylvania and so he, um, he came to uh, Pennsylvania with the intention of doing good, of, of, of developing a good relationship with the indigenous people and, and almost uh, building a utopian kind of community there. And the irony is that he did well. He did good and he did really well. He became a very, very wealthy, successful person. But he stayed, kind of like Daniel, he stayed very aligned with his core values. And I would commend that to you as a notion of if you ever find in your practices that you are making a choice between doing good and doing well, that that is a really important moment in time to take stock. Because that is a false dichotomy in my experience. That's helpful, thank you. Mm. Um, can I just look around the audience here? We've got about 110 people. And I'm just curious, um, for those who are law students, do you mind raising your hands? Okay, so there's quite a few there. Um, and how about, like, you're, you've graduated, you're in your first couple years of practice. Are there people there? Yep. 
and then people sort of who've been going for a while into the decades now. Anyone there? Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> and, and then how about people towards the end of their career and looking to retire and, yep. <laughs> That's great. Um, because what, what we're really hoping for this session is that each of you at whatever stage you're at will be able to glean something from what we're talking about because it will be relevant whatever stage you're at. That the principles that we're about to dive into, um, you'll be able to apply. So just be thinking in that. In particular, I'm thinking for the law students. Like, mm. I wish that I'd heard this stuff when mm. I had just graduated or I was still a law student. Like, it would be amazing. But I want to ask about the word balance. Mm. So I have some problems with the word balance, and I'd like to share them with you and see what you think. Um, the problem I have with the word balance is it implies that part of my life is good and part of my life is bad, and that I need to somehow weigh up the work side of stuff being the bad side that takes me away from the good stuff, which is the fun, family, free mm. time things. And it sometimes feels like when we talk about balance, it's like I want to work less um, in order mm -hmm. to do the things I really care about. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you could share any thoughts mm -hmm. or reflections you have yeah. about that term yeah. itself. You, you know, I have to agree with you that I'm not entirely comfortable with the concept of balance either um, for much the same reasons that you've mentioned. I think for me, the concept, the, 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 the notion of seamless integration is a more comfortable concept because there certainly were times in my professional career when I felt that there was a very much kind of a, um, a very clear line between my personal and professional life when I was on duty and when I was off duty. And particularly in the beginning of my career, I almost felt that that had to be that way or else I wouldn't be sufficiently professional. But what I've realized over time, and as I've grown in self-confidence and just comfort in my own skin, that that line is also, um, a, 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 it, it's false. There's really no beginning and no end. And that to the extent one cre can create a, a, a work-life approach in which truly your work is your love made visible. Truly, your work is your love made visible, then you will find a sustainable integration that will probably serve you well. And if your work is not your love made visible, then perhaps you should be doing some soul searching around that one. And what, what could you do that would make that more the case? And how can you integrate what's most important to you from a familial or faith or personal perspective so that you get closer and closer to that? Now, that is an ideal. That is an ideal. It is aspirational. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't or can't be on a trajectory towards that as um, an objective for yourself. So does, that, does that make sense? It, it does make sense, yeah. but I want to unpack it a little bit more. Um, work is your love made visible, was that mm. the, the sort of phrase you used? So yeah. how do you know if you've reached that? Mm. Um, you know, 
you just have to, this is where the notion, I think, of faith comes in. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many things that, that we don't know, but we have faith, and intuitively, we kind of get a sense of when we're getting close to that. And that, that, that sense is characterized, at least in my case, by a feeling of ease and joy and, and comfort and lightness that I'm not Atlas pushing the heavy rock up the hill. Yeah, that, that instead, nor am I, nor is, the, nor is the rock chasing me down the hill. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that instead, I am um, almost in a very lovely uh, choreography. You know, I don't know about the, you, the, you, you, but I, I love the ballet. I love the classical ballet. And I also love great choral works of music. And what do I love about those things? Both of those are about harmony, right? When, when a couple of ballet dancers are doing a beautiful pas de deux together, it is an absolute seamless integration. Um, I just recently went to see a performance of uh, the, the Bach um, St. Matthew Passion. Oh, you know, the music, the choral works. It's kind of that feeling that you get when you're experiencing that, or if you're in church and, you know, and everybody is singing a beautiful song together. It's, it's about that. In my mind, it, I hear you and I echo that. In my mind, it's almost like you know, a bell. And if you mm -hmm. strike the bell and it's on the ground, it, it's not going to make a sound. Mm -hmm. But if it's lifted up and you strike it, it's going to ring out and you can hear it. And it's mm -hmm. that sort of feeling in tune, right, mm -hmm. with what mm -hmm. you're doing being um, for a purpose. Yeah. And I think that's really, the, to me, that's a really key word is mm -hmm. what's the purpose? What's, yeah. why do I do what I do? Mm -hmm. And the, the, what I'm hoping people here listening are taking from this is to ask the hard question, which is, is what I'm doing fulfilling purpose in the way that I actually feel like I'm a bell which is being struck mm -hmm. and which is ringing out? Mm -hmm. Because uh, the shame would be if you go through your entire career and you get to 65 or whatever and you look back and you think, I never really enjoyed what I did. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that would be the real shame. Yeah. Well, that, that is despair. That is the ultimate despair. Um, some of the work of the uh, developmental psychologist, Eric Erickson, who was really the first psychologist, and I think, you know, informed by, in a spiritual way, by the notion of looking at um, human development, not so much just in early childhood and early adulthood, but also towards the end of life. And he talks about the two last phases of life, which to me are fascinating and, and very very much tie in with Christian um, theology. So the, the, the second to last phase is what he refers to as generativity. Generativity is basically that desire to give back, to put back into life, to be appreciative, the gratitude, the contribution. And I don't think it's at all limited to, you know, towards the end of life experience. It's something that ideally we should be engaging in throughout our lives. The reverse of generativity is stagnation. It is just be becoming self-absorbed with your own comfort and pleasure. And then the final stage of life, and I think that, you know, for me, what I aspire to is to spend like 99% of my life in generativity. 
And then in the last 1%, before, you know, right before the end of life experience, to move into the stage that Erickson characterizes as integration. And integration is reflecting back on your life the things that were meaningful to you and the fact that you were able to act on and pursue those things that were of great meaning to you. And the reverse, of course, of integration is despair. And despair is realizing when it's too late that you missed the boat on those things. And I would suggest to you that all of you, the fact that you're gathered here, we're all gathered here together in what I think of as one of the most lovely concepts of Christianity, the body of Christ, that it is an opportunity for all of us to support each other individually and collectively in that notion of generativity. And, and that goes back to the notion of, of your meaning and purpose in your work. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's obviously it's beyond being lawyers. It's for anyone to ask these mm. questions. Um, what is bringing fulfillment? Mm. For me, just to share a personal reflection, you know, when I was um, 21, I'd done three years at Canterbury Law School, mm -hmm. and I had the opportunity to go to Japan, and it was like a working holiday visa for a year. And some people counseled me, you should stay in law school, finish, get your first job, get your career going. But um, somebody else said, it's a risk, but you need to live life and experience life as well. And I'm so glad I listened to them because if I'd stayed and just gone on and got my first job, I wouldn't have had a year of rich, deepening experience of yeah. living in Japan. And actually the thing that helped me make that decision is I was thinking, you know, hopefully when I'm 90 or whatever and looking back on my life, am I gonna regret not going? Mm. And that, to me, was the, the guiding principle. Mm -hmm. And since then, that's how I've helped. It's helped me to make decisions since then is when I'm at the end of my life, what will I look back on and, and regret yeah. or not regret? Are you, are you familiar, um, Stephen, with the, the wonderful Robert Frost poem? Mm, two about, Roads yeah, Diverged. Yeah, about two, two Roads Diverged. Robert Frost is from Vermont. And um, the wonderful line from his poem uh, about a walk in the woods is two roads, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And the reason it's yellow is because it's in the autumn and the leaves have, have changed color. And, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And, um, and that's certainly been true for me, mm. I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just to echo it again from my own experience, and the reason I share this is hopefully it's helpful to people, is I graduated from university, I worked at a major national law firm, mm. and then I spent 11 years working for an international law firm in Tokyo, London, and Sydney. And I used to call clients corporate mergers and acquisitions, call them, basically knowing I was giving them good news about the deals closed, it's all fine, basically giving them the news of what's the next Lamborghini color gonna be, you know? <laughs> I was helping wealthy people get a lot wealthier. And I came back to New Zealand three years ago, and since then I've changed my focus a huge amount. So mm -hmm. now I feel like I am that bell that's being struck because mm -hmm. my purpose is now integrated with my life, yeah. working with 
not only charities, not for profits, churches and things, but also corporates. So I, mm. now I feel like I'm actually doing something that I feel passionate about. Yeah. So and that, it's so much you, more satisfying. You, you, you got beyond that false dichotomy. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That, and, and to that point of integration. I feel like that's, yeah. that's where I'm at getting yeah. to. I don't feel like I'm perfectly there. Like there will always be work, but it definitely mm. is mm. way more resonating yeah. than three years ago. And it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, a notion of, of going with a slipstream. I mean, when I go in and I work, what I do now is I work with law firms around New Zealand. And I often do what I think of as parachuting into a law firm. Firm, get contacted, the firm is identified, the partners, some things of concern or whatever. I parachute in, I, I ask questions, I talk with people, and I try to identify almost at a you know kind of a slipstream and energetic level. What is it that's going to serve that group of human beings and that, you know, that organization well? What's going to reduce the level of organizational anxiety? What's going to enhance the level of functioning for the individuals? And I don't go in, I don't tell people what to do, because I think that's an insult to their intelligence and their capabilities. Um, but it's you know, giving people an opportunity to, to have the kind of experience that you've described so well, Stephen. Mm. And it's about reflecting, right? Yeah. And yeah. I think too often in Western culture in particular, we're so busy, particularly with our devices, there's always an urgent mm. message. <laughs> and we don't take that time to reflect, to step back and to go, where am I in my life? You know, yeah. it's a basic question, but mm. how often do we... To what end? To simply... To what end? Yeah, that's it. To what end? So yeah. I think that's really helpful. And, and the reason that I'm sharing is that, you know, when I had my realization, I was mm. 39. So um, it's never too late to have these things, Absolutely. is it? It's yeah. whatever situation you're in, whether you're a law student or whether you're ending your career, there's always this chance to reflect mm -hmm. and look for ways that you can seek that out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I so, call that grace. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love to turn and just touch on a couple other topics, because I think we've, we've talked about balance there. I know you help with the stepping up course mm. here in New Zealand, and you're mm -hmm. traveling around and coming in, and I think you talk particularly about people and management. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the key things that you're trying to get across in that course? Sure. Yeah, it's been an interesting little journey for me. I started uh, teaching what's euphemistically called the people dimension in the Stepping Up course about a year and a half ago. And initially, I thought that my job was to impart knowledge, to sort of lecture and engage the group a little bit in um, dialogue, but mostly to impart wisdom and knowledge about how you manage people and things like that. And I did that for the first several sessions. And I kind of realized that I wasn't getting f um, really the full value out of that. So I found myself increasingly going back to the core principles of emotional intelligence. And as I say to the group, EQ at essence is really, really simple. It's about two things. It's about number one, how you choose to manage yourself in various situations, number one. And number two, how you choose to manage your relationships, people with whom you are in relationship with. And if you are able to enhance, which I think we all are, I take this as a given, if we, are, if we enhance the ways we, and the choices we make about how we manage ourselves, how we manage ourselves at each of those crossroads we have to make those choices, then like day follows night, the quality of our relationships with other people will enhance. 
So it starts with us and the, 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 the way we manage ourselves because of course managing, you are, you are the only individual in the world over whom you have complete control over how you manage yourself. So driven by that, if you will, philosophical perspective, what I focus on now really is only two major things. There's lots of material in the written materials from a, a very practical perspective around managing your people and your practice and this and that. But in the two hours when I, that I have with the group, I focus on two things. One is I focus on how to have a difficult conversation with somebody in a compassionate and supportive and appropriate way, an optimal way. And I actually do a role play of, of, a, of a typical, of, of, a, of a possible difficult conversation between a partner and a, and a junior. And the other thing that I focus on increasingly is a knowledge of temperament. Learning, great, gaining some insight about your own temperament and the temperament choices of other people, that being kind of the nature part of who we are as human beings, the God-given part, if you will, and how to manage yourself through that knowledge to enhance your interactions with other people so that you learn kind of how to tailor the way you interact with other people to get the best outcomes in that work. And interestingly, the feedback that I'm getting now from the Stepping Up participants is that this is extraordinarily helpful stuff. They're learning it not so much at a cerebral level, they're learning it at an experiential and visceral, and you could almost say spiritual level. Because in my experience, that's when the real change in learning occurs with people. So I, I intentionally create an, you know, an environment in that course where people can have that kind of um, uh, experiential mm, That's learning. good. And just to pick up on the first point you said, just to make sure that it's really highlighted, because I completely agree with mm. you. You know, you get org charts, and, you, and your name is on the organizational chart somewhere. And you might be at the very bottom, <laughs> mm. in the sense of there's a big hierarchy, mm -hmm. it's a big firm, or whatever the situation is in a community group setting, wherever. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people use that as a default to say, well, it's not me, it's them. It's mm. I'm helpless. I'm, I'm not in charge, they're yeah. in charge. But isn't that the challenge, is what you're saying, is yeah. we... It's true that we're not in charge of the organization, but mm -hmm. we are in charge of one thing, yep. and that's ourselves. And there's only one person who's responsible for you. Mm -hmm. And it's about then being proactive in how can I add value yeah. to whatever organization I'm in, whatever level I'm in, mm -hmm. how can I act as if I'm higher yeah. up and, and it's, actually and it's, you bring know, it's really solutions. Interesting. Um, I have seen so many situations in which, um, for example, in a law firm or what have you, where one individual who is often in a relatively junior position begins to make some choices around managing him or herself differently. And that's often what I work with people on. What are the, what are the choices that you could you know, choose to make in terms of how you're managing yourself? And then because we are, a, we are in, a, um, in a system together, that when one member of a system begins to, begins to behave it's around behavior, behavior driven by thinking first. When an individual in a system begins to think slightly differently about things, and then that manifests itself in changed behavior, then it is like a billiard ball game, that the, the balls start moving around in different ways. And sometimes the changes can be quite extraordinary. 
quite extraordinary. So, and, and that to me is a notion of self-empowerment. Self-empowerment, that indeed you can have an impact. And I think that kind of self-empowerment can be supported by a profound spiritual uh, you know, orientation in your life. No, that's good. And I'm just picking up on something that you're saying quite often, which is the people dimension. Mm. You know, that people are important. But when we, you know, when we look back at our own um, law school training, mm. there's no course called People 101. <laughs> and yet, the reality is for each one of us, whether it's our colleagues, whether it's our clients, mm. whether it's at court, whatever it is, the people dimension is so important. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you could give us some pointers. I'm just curious, some hints about empathy mm. and relating with other people. Is there any guidance you have for us mm. or things that you've observed? Oh, yeah, it's you know, empathy and compassion. Somebody said to me recently that compassion, that, that wisdom informed by love is compassion, right? And I have to share with you a story from my mother's childhood that ties in with empathy, right? So my, my mother's father, my grandfather, was a, um, a minister in, in Bristol, England, and he, was also, he also had a PhD in philosophy from Oxford. He was a bright guy. And one day, my mother was an only child, and she was a you know, bright, articulate little girl, and she said to my, my grandfather, she said, Pop, what's imagination? And he thought for a minute, and he said, imagination is the ability to walk around in someone else's shoes for a while. And to me, ultimately, that's what empathy is, that empathy requires a certain level of imagination. The other great one-liner he came up with that I will share with you, and that I tried on with a professor of philosophy at the University of Auckland one day when we were sitting on the plane together, she once said to him, she said, Pop, What's a philosopher, right? And he thought for a minute and he said, a philosopher is a man or a woman who can stand on the prow of a sinking ship and notice how beautiful the sunset is. <laughs> does that help? That does help, it does. <laughs> no, that's good. I think, I think it's just so important, the people dimension and understanding people because mm -hmm. the reality is that as lawyers, there is a tendency to start focusing on billable units mm -hmm. and this person is worth how much to me and the budget that I need to meet. And sometimes we forget what drew us often to the law in the first place, which mm -hmm. for many of us I think would echo your experience, which is I want to help people. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we get distracted. Um, I know it's been termed to me the idea of golden handcuffs, mm -hmm. you know, that, that the law does pay well but you need to meet certain targets and things. And so I think it's just good reminder that at the end of the day, we're dealing with people and we need to have that empathy. Mm. Um, from, from my perspective, I love the word curious. And if you can be curious about another person, um, my mother, um, to share a story, she said to me, if you meet someone and you don't think they're interesting, mm -hmm. that's your fault. <laughs> Every single person has a story, and you just have not asked the right question yet. And I think there's a temptation for us, particularly in our busy world, to move on to the next thing and not take that extra few seconds to yeah. just ask, how are you doing? You yeah. know? And again, I think that curiosity, going back to the, the sort of the Quakerism, and I think I've 
feel very comfortable with this in the, you know, the Anglican faith as well, is that notion of there is that of God in every human being. Mm. If, if the starting point is that there is that of God in every human being, then you will find them, you will be curious because you will be curious to learn about that, right? It just, it's, it's, just, it, it, it's, it's, it's just such a natural um, corollary to that. Yeah, that's yeah. great. So you've met many people, you've worked with many law firms, and, and I just particularly want you to speak to the law students in our audience. Mm. I'm sure other people will gain from this as well, but what advice would you have for them in terms of they're just maybe not finished their degree yet, they're working mm -hmm. out where they're gonna fit, what would you say to them? Yeah. Oh, boy, it's a long journey, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I guess what I, would, what I would be inclined to say is that just, you know, follow your nose on things and, and don't be dazzled. Don't be dazzled because all that glitters is not gold. And so certainly pursue things that will challenge you Pursue things that you will love and that interest you. Money does matter. I'm a, I'm a realist, too. I'm a pragmatist. Um, try to avoid getting yourself in a situation, because I, I talk with young lawyers who often find themselves in this bind, where they feel, again, there is this choice they have to make between achieving a certain lifestyle and doing work that they would love. And Clearly, there are hard choices to be made in that regard, and, and sometimes you may make some choices that will give you greater financial security. But check back with yourself about that, because it's, um, it's, it's a slippery slide. It's a slippery slide, and you're coming out of a training in which, uh, which is typically not so much a values-based training. It is a training that is very technical. You're, you've gained a lot of information, but the, and, and, it, and certainly there's discussion of values in the law, but there isn't a lot of discussion about values in a broader context. And if you find yourself in a situation um, where your values are being compromised and you're feeling a lot of pressure in that regard, you know, pause and, and take stock. Pause and take stock because the choices you make in that context, again, over time may not serve you well. Mm, that's helpful. Thank you. I want you to move on now. Some of us are practicing. Oh, okay. <laughs> what really? advice? <laughs> yeah. What, what advice have you got for those of us who are, you know, on the journey, maybe been practicing a few years, mm -hmm. or maybe even have um, become partners in law firms? Um, yeah. Any wisdom or thoughts that you'd have for that that sort of person? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I guess, you know, do, do your best. Do your best. Um, try to manage the anxiety that comes with the practice of law as well as you can. Um, try to get along harmoniously with your partners, but also have boundaries around that. Yeah, because uh, there may be, again, within... All law firms are not alike, and if you find yourself in a law firm where you're doing well professionally, but again, the core values are not suiting you, become aware of that. Um, and I, I have to share with you a story that I once read about in terms of managing anxiety, and 
and all of the feelings of inadequacy that we often have felt as lawyers, many of us. It's a, it's a story of an interview with Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the first female judge on the US Supreme Court. And she was asked one day what it was that she found to be, that contributed most to her great professional success. And she said, it's actually very simple. It's two things. One is I focus on doing my best work, my very best at whatever I, it is I'm doing. And secondly, unless I know I've done something wrong, I put it aside and I don't look back. I move on. And I thought, as you, you know, grow in your professional stature and your self-confidence, that that's probably good advice. So it's, it's key, isn't it? And mm -hmm. not to take it personal, not to take things on board, and to have that separation as well. I, I think particularly for lawyers, it's sometimes easy to empathize too much with your clients, and, mm -hmm. and you end up absorbing the problems and the issues that they've brought. And um, so that's definitely mm. a lesson. The last group I'd like you to speak to is those who are ending, or coming to the end of their careers or who are already retired. Mm -hmm. what, what role do you think they have to play in, for example, a community like this? Yeah. What, what should they be thinking about? Well, I have to tell you that for my husband and myself, our philosophy about um, retirement is, is this, retire early and often. Right? Retire early and often. So my, my husband is actually on his fourth retirement. Each time he gets another reti great retirement gift and he goes back, you know, goes back to the well. And I'm, I think, on my third. Uh, and the other thing I would suggest is that it's not, I, I really don't like the word retirement, right? The word that I like is reinvention of self. It's another R word. And I think for people of faith that the opportunities to reinvent self in many ways are, are just endless. And that the other thing that's important is as you move towards what could be the end of your, of your career as in its current iteration is the notion of leave, leave them wanting more, right? Don't outstay your welcome. That's a, that's a quote from the Barnum and Bailey Circus Company in, uh, in the U.S. Leave them wanting more, right? Declare victory and walk off the field. And I, what I find is that there's often great anxiety that older practitioners share with me in the, in the, in the confines of what I think the confessional and my one-on-one -on -one work with them about who are they going to be and what are they going to do with themselves and, you know, all of that. It's really kind of existential questions, and I just, I just often say to them, good of, be of good faith, be of stout heart and good faith. You have absolutely the ability to reinvent yourself and create those opportunities for other people and engage in succession planning and, and welcome it. Welcome it with joy rather than with fear. That's great. Well, see, what we're trying to do here is reach out to every single person in the room, and I think whatever stage they're at, even if it doesn't apply right now, hopefully they'll remember something of that because this sort of conversation doesn't happen enough in the law. We need this information, but nobody talks about this stuff. It's taboo, isn't it? It is taboo. It, to what end? Why is that? What's that about? Mm. Yeah. Well, in, in my view, it's about being a bit vulnerable and mm. actually asking the deep questions of yourself <laughs> Back to purpose, right? Yeah. What is my purpose? Am I fulfilling it? Am I the bell that's being rung mm. or not? 
It's interesting. One of the concepts I often find myself talking with lawyers about is what I think of as appropriate levels of personal and professional vulnerability. Because at the end of the day, one of the things I've noticed is, in fact, the people who are, and the lawyers, the professionals who are the strongest leaders and the most appropriate leaders are the ones who understand that notion of what does, it, what does it mean to have an appropriate level of personal and professional vulnerability. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, now what we're gonna do is leave them wanting more. <laughs> because I'm sure if I opened it up for questions, there would be so many questions, there would be so much discussion that we could have. Um, but I do know that you are frequently writing in the Law Society magazine. Mm. You do different seminars and things, and I can personally um, vouch for the fact that you came to our law firm in Christchurch and went through a whole day long with whiteboards thinking about our firm, who we were, what our identity was. So if people want to know more, um, if they Google your name, <laughs> they will be able to find you. I know you have a website and more information, right? I do, yes, thank you. Yeah. So um, what I'd like to do is finish that session there, but thank you all for listening. You've been great listeners. Um, if you're interested in this style of interview and what I'm trying to do, um, basically I'm trying to tell stories which inspire people, and hopefully the idea of seeds is that seeds look like they're dead. You give them the right conditions and they'll grow. And my aim is for every podcast episode to have something that's really helpful for people that it could grow in their own lives. So I've been doing it for a year and a half now, and I've now done 104 episodes as of today. So every Tuesday I'm uploading a new episode. And the point of it is that there's a contrast every week, but the theme that runs through it is purpose. So I interviewed a six-year-old about what it's like to be six, because we forget. And I interviewed a 90-year-old nun who worked in palliative care for 70 years. And she told me about her father hearing the news that World War II had broken out and how her father was crying. So these are little stories and glimpses into our own collective past that I'm trying to, to pass on through the podcast. So I've left a few little business cards on your chairs. It's a type of podcast that will only grow through word of mouth. So I would love it if you would be ambassadors for the podcast, because I can only tell the people that I know. But through you, it can actually reach more people. And it's gaining huge traction. It's just hit 31,000 listens across all of the episodes. So that's a lot of content that's out there if you're driving, mowing the lawn, that type of thing. So that's my little plug for Seeds. Um, but I just want you to join me in saying thank you very much to Emily for sharing with us. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Emily. I know for me there were several things that stood out, and as you could probably tell, a lot resonated with me in terms of my own life and career and trying to get that balance right. Or maybe I shouldn't say balance, maybe I should say integration right. And it's something that I feel like I'm still learning, but I'm definitely a lot better than I used to be. If you enjoyed the content, then consider checking out some of the earlier episodes as well. And also, Emily has a great website where she's got lots of articles about themes and topics, which we only barely had a chance to touch on in the interview. You can find her at emilymorrow.com. Until next time! Mm -hmm.